You're listening to a People of Note podcast, as heard on Classic 1027. A very good evening to you, and welcome to People of Note on Classic 1027 with me, Richard Cock. This program is broadcast every Sunday on Classic 1027, and in it I talk to someone who is a person of note, and we listen to music of their choice. Tonight, I welcome Michael Fridjon, who's a wine judge, director of Winex, a visiting professor of wine business at the Graduate School of Business at UCT, former advisor to the Minister of Agriculture, and basically a wine lover. Welcome. Thank you very much for having me here. It's a great pleasure, and uh, you've chosen some wonderful music, so we're in for a treat. How on earth did you get involved in wine? Um, it really is a truth of a misspent youth, and um, I think there's value in that, a misspent youth and then everything which followed from it. So I grew up in Johannesburg and in an era in which I think there was much less, uh, there was certainly very much less wine around. Um, I was fortunate in that my parents liked wine rather than were wine freaks. Um, my best friend's parents also liked wine. And we mixed in circles of a community of artists, uh, Cecil Scottness, Eduardo Villa, Vetterina Managelli, people who had wine and served wine as opposed to beer and spirits, which was pretty much the norm in Johannesburg in the 1960s. So I grew up with wine, liked it from the outset, became more and more interested in it. Um, started building up a collection, I think probably even when I was still at school. And by the time I went to university, um, I started working part-time in the wine industry because by then my amateur knowledge was sufficient to give me quite a good job. I worked at a place called Benny Goldberg's and even as a student was their professional wine advisor. So it was always a kind of default position. I then drifted off after my honours year and spent a year in France in Montpellier, which is a wine mecca from a technical and training perspective rather than from a quality perspective, and used it as a base to spend time in Bordeaux and in Burgundy. And so I pursued that knowledge even further. Came back to Johannesburg without an idea as to what I was going to do with an honours degree and no real qualification in anything and thought, well, I can carry on doing this until one day I'm ready to grow up and get a proper job. And I've managed to defer that decision for so long now that I'm pretty certain I'll never have a proper job. And you're still just as much in love with wine. I'm absolutely in love with wine. I enjoy it. I'm interested in it. I'm not obsessed with it. Um, And as I was saying, I don't rush out and get the latest issue of wine publications every month to hear what the latest discovery is because I'm a wine critic, because I write a weekly wine column, because I run the Wine Wizard website, so I'm constantly reviewing wine. I have the advantage of tasting a great deal of what is new and what's coming to the market. But the reality is I still want to love wine. I still want to be able to go to my cellar of an evening and choose a bottle that I really feel like and be excited at the prospect of drawing the cork. Well, and it's an amazing story. I mean, the whole wine business in South Africa has been an amazing story over the last how many years? 40 years? 40 years, pretty much, yes. Yeah. It's, um, and, and now it will be an even more extraordinary story after the last seven months or so. So, And we're going to hear about that and how this strange situation that we're in has affected the wine industry and where we're going to go from here. But your first choice of music is by Karl Ditters von Dittersdorf, which is a very unusual choice, I must say. It dates back, in fact, to when I was in Montpellier um, as a student with very little money. I must say that probably the most important lessons from my year in Montpellier was the fact that I learned French and the fact that I learned to live with very little and be very happy with it. And so when I went out to buy music, it had to be what was on sales tables. And uh, that's how I landed up with Karl Dittes von Dittersdorf, uh, both uh, the obvious one, the concerto for double bass and actually I loved it. It was a piece of music that I had to play over and over again because I had a very small collection and I'm very pleased that we're going to hear it now. 
And here's one of the movements from the Concerto for Double Bass by Karl Ditters von Dittersdorf. That was part of the Concerto for Double Bass by Karl Ditters von Dittersdorf, the choice of Michael Fridjon, who's my guest in People of Note tonight. And pretty obviously, if you were quite young when you chose that, you must have had some interest in music also. Tell us just how did that happen? Once again, I think uh, the happy combination of my parents who had an interest in music. We grew up in a house in which they had wired speakers to almost every room. The equipment was pre-stereo, I have to say, and in fact originally 78s. And so we did hear music. I was interested. Um, I started building a small record collection myself. And when I was at school, which was at King Edward VII School, um, I was chairman of the Music Society. We had access to tickets on the stage behind the orchestra at the symphony concerts, The I think in those days, SABC Symphony Orchestra. And once a week, I'd take the bus into town at whatever it was, 7.30 in the evening, listen to the concert and take the bus home. And um, I just loved the music I came to listen to. It almost seems amazing that buses were running at sort of half past ten at night. Absolutely, <laughs> which they did, and yeah. they were, at least for those running a bus along Louis Butter Avenue from Upper Houghton to the City Hall, reliable enough, ample choice, and that one's parents simply said, have fun, don't be late, and you'd be home by ten. Yeah, and just tell me, because your name has an unusual spelling, Fridjon, it's, what, where does it come from? Well, Lithuanian or and therefore Baltic area where it would have been, as we've now absolutely confirmed, Fridson. And so my grand my great grandfather, my grandfather on my father's side and beyond that, lived in Lithuania and the name we're now certain was Fridson. And they when they left, I suppose, an area that was definitely unsafe, made their way, many of them, to Ireland, where the Irish customs and border officials um, couldn't work out the Fridson, and instead of it being what would have been, I guess, S-O-H-N, transposed it to S-H-O-N, and the S must have looked like a J, and so it became Fridjon, spelt wrong, yeah. as in J-H-O-N. Yeah, yes, because it sounds like Danish or something from that area. But obviously they were um, music lovers as well, as you said. And your next choice is also an unusual choice of a Paganini sonata for violin and guitar. And that also dates pretty much to that era, um, post-student life in Johannesburg, early working career. And a friend of mine discovered the um, the disc of concertos for violin and guitar. I acquired it um, in the course of various moves. I lost it. I was very distressed. And then, because in those days you had to actually own it, you couldn't download it. I was in New York and I found the CD of it, which I still have, and over time acquired many more of those Paganini concertos. Um, and they remain part of my most loved music collection. So here it comes, uh, a sonata for violin and guitar by Paganini, the choice of Michael Fridjon. That was a sonata for violin and guitar by Niccolo Paganini, and Michael Fridjon is my guest. He's a wine lover more than anything else. And it obviously uh, occurs to me that you've spent time abroad also. I mean, you talk about France and New York. Have you lived for any length of time abroad apart from France? No. So the year I spent in France is really the longest time I've spent abroad. The nature of my work, um, certainly pre-COVID, involved extensive travel and hopefully still will. Um, so typically I judge in, I've judged in most sort of wine areas, wine regions. So traveling once or twice a year for wine judging, traveling a couple of times a year for wine buying, traveling a couple of times a year for consulting. I have a fairly busy wine consulting practice. All of that meant that I had extensive 
overseas travel over many years and lots of local travel. If you are going to be um, a professional wine person in South Africa and you insist on living in Johannesburg, the one thing you can be pretty certain of, you, you have a weekly commute to, to Cape Town, which works fine. Um, I love being there and I love coming home. Well, and perhaps this is a good time to ask you then, because you haven't been able to travel for the last seven or eight months, uh, what effect has COVID had on the whole wine industry? Well, obviously, and certainly in the last three or four months, I have been going backwards and forwards to the Cape a bit far less than would have been normal. Um, But I've certainly been observing and I'm obviously in the flow of information. And the answer very simply is catastrophic. And catastrophic at a level, firstly, that might have been avoidable. I think the indefensible lockdown on liquor sales has been very damaging and will certainly account for a massive attrition amongst small producers. Well, let Um, alone income for the government. Income for the government. Uh, It's catastrophic, catastrophic for retailers. The smaller retailers simply haven't been able to pay their staff. Whatever the issues around alcohol and the distribution of alcohol to Shabins and the illicit sector, um, that's a massive job loss. And that's not the wine industry particularly, but it's certainly the liquor industry. And um, the answer very simply is that the recovery, if it takes place, so there will be people who never reappear in the wine and spirits industry. There will be small brewers, small gin distillers who have simply vanished off the face of the earth and lots of the new generation craft wine producers. So if you look back at the South African wine industry of 20 years ago, there were two or 300 producing sellers. At the peak pre-COVID, you were looking at about 600. But most of that growth came from small producers working in small cellars, not quite garagists or boutique, and many of them obviously hugely dependent on ongoing sales simply to cash flow their enterprises. So they are part of the fallout. Within the alcohol ban, the ban on exports, which was applied throughout Level 5 lockdown, and for which there was absolutely no justification, has had a huge impact on the big exporters particularly because they couldn't send their container loads to the port. Therefore, the pipeline of South African product in international markets simply dried up. They lost listings. They lost commercial opportunities. When they came back, they had to fight their way onto the shelves. It's like starting again. They had to start again. So there's been a massive loss there. In addition, and this is certainly no one's fault, those countries have also had their problems. So even though they permitted liquor sales, the on-consumption, the hospitality sector, has suffered a massive loss. And many of the more boutique-style South African producers appear on wine lists. So their customer base overseas and domestically has vanished. The guys who are in the supermarkets and who are in the online trade have done very well because as people in lockdown overseas stayed at home they bought wine to drink at home and not having to drink it in a restaurant with the restaurant's markups what they started to do was to buy better and that's worked quite well for people who were positioned by good fortune to be in the right place at the right time gosh that's a a sad story you're telling and I want to ask you something after your next choice because while you were talking I was thinking of pictures by Goya for example because I noticed your next choice is Goyescas of that um, scene of guys the, the, the execution the execution scene. yeah and that reminded me of that so Goyescas is your next choice which is an also an interesting one okay there a connection it was an LP that my parents had and which I obviously liked listening to and once again in my travels, I discovered the CD of the same performance, Alicia de la Rocha, and was delighted to have it. And both that, the fact that I have a great affinity for Spain. Um, as kids, we traveled overseas. My parents checked out for three or four months, which was wonderful. I was nine. We spent five weeks of the four months away in Spain. 
Um, and a lot of that time, I have to say, in the Prado, I was nine. I, once again, our parents said, that's what we're doing. After about a week of going to the Prado, my brother and I said, we actually aren't going anymore. We've seen enough paintings. And they said, well, you've got the run of Madrid to just be back at the hotel by six o'clock. And so we wandered the streets of Madrid and had a fabulous time. And yes, the Goyas and quite rightly, the I mean, for me, the paintings and the images are haunting and very strong and the connection between the art which I love, the music which I love, is present in the Goyescas. And it's Los Requiebros. That was Los Requiebros from Goyescas by Enrique Granados, the choice of Michael Fridjon, my guest in People of Note. I just want to pick up on something you said there, that your parents just decided to pack up and go for five months. This was obviously quite an unusual family that you came from. Absolutely. Um, and I think it's a privilege to have grown up in a, an unconventional home. Uh, my father was a, a journalist. Um, he had acquired a huge amount of long leave, um, more than he could take. And the Rand Daily Mail and the Sunday Times for which he worked gave him, paid out a portion of the leave. My mother, my brother and I had in fact gone to England for what would have been June, July of 1962 um, because my mother's family all lived there and I hadn't seen them properly, not since I was old enough to realize they were family. So we went and we were expecting to come back at the end of a three or four week holiday at the school holidays and my father sent a telegram to say actually stay where you are, I'm joining you. And he negotiated with the school that we simply wouldn't return until after the September holidays. And we took a little Austin Mini A7 Traveller and drove around Europe for three months. I just want to tell a little story here which uh, involves a friend of mine who'd, who's done the same thing. Uh, he took his kids out of school and they travelled through Africa for six months. And they came back and his kids came top of the class at the end of the year and I'm sure the same applied same to with you. me my yeah. exactly it was yeah. my the year of which I came top of the class having never been there before and I gained an advantage I never lost so yeah. that loss of formal schooling and I can tell you now we weren't made to sit around and look up our textbooks while we were traveling yeah. we came back with widened minds and an ability to absorb much more information and don't you think that that has been happening during lockdown also I think those kids who work better on their own, sort of away from school, have are really going to make a leap forward now because the world is open to them on internet and so on. They well, can please themselves where they go. I have two kids at school, uh, one in matric, one in grade 10. They both have been dutiful about online working, uh, which has been a huge relief to us. They haven't needed um, either a carrot or a goad. Um, the matriculant obviously has to be Focus. that's what's required and he at one stage when they were starting to go back to school was slightly irritated about it he said between the protocols and the procedures it's much less efficient working I think he loved the idea of being back at school I think he missed having the the social life that comes with it but academically it certainly wasn't an imposition and my younger son just judging from the marks that are coming through now has and he was doing well is doing even better yeah uh, it's been amazing, actually. And your next choice is Keith Jarrett. Let's just listen to it first, and then we can talk about it. That was music by Keith Jarrett from the famous uh, recording of the Cologne concert. And it's, it is slightly unusual because it is a contemporary piece of music. Um, a friend of mine introduced me to that, a fellow journalist, in fact, and... Almost immediately I fell in love with it. It's one of those pieces of music I almost travel with. It's now on my phone. The idea of just there, it's a mood. And when it catches you, it is completely seductive. You sublimate in the music and there is a peculiar tension, as you know well, both in his performances generally and in that extraordinary concert that even though you know it well, you hang on waiting for the next note. It's beautiful. 
Well, that was Keith Jarrett and the Cologne Concert. Michael Fridjon is my guest in People of Note. That's the program you're listening to on Classic 1027. It's broadcast every Sunday from 6 to 8 p.m. One of the things you mentioned in terms of the wine business was that people haven't been able to get their wines out. Now, bottled wine, or even unbottled wine, takes up a lot of space. So what is happening to all the wine which is unsold now? I mean, I this mean, is quite a serious problem. It's a provocative question at a number of levels, <laughs> because, yes, so uh, firstly, the industry pre-lockdown was probably 50% export, 50% local market, more or less, depending on the year. A lot of what is exported is exported in bulk, which isn't great for South Africa or for our image abroad because it tends to be at the lower price points. So those go out in huge fluid containers and presumably have still been doing so. Um, The bottled wine has a number of cost elements. Packaging costs more than wine generally. So if you had bottled wine and you couldn't get it out, not only was it occupying space, but it was costing you money because until you can sell it, you can't fund the packaging you need for the next bottling run. Just let me pick you up on that for a moment. So the packaging, like bottle, cork, box, printing, labels, costs more than the wine. Costs more than the wine at a kind of basic sense. So we're not talking about wine that is very expensive because it's handcrafted, has lots of French oak added. The basic fruit cost of wine processed and turned into juice compared with the glass, the corks, the capsules, all of that, pretty much that's where it is. And by the time you add domestic transport, which is relatively high compared with the percentage of cost of wine, the the poor producer gets leased out of the whole deal. The Downline costs are much more significant than the basic production costs. So, yes, that's a problem. What we already know, and this is why it's hard to quantify how serious this crisis will be for the industry, is that many of the producers who themselves don't own all their vineyards or don't own vineyards at all and contract to buy grapes from growers every year have already given an indication that they're not going to be grape buyers in 2021. Now, that is an enormous crisis for the grape growers because their fruit is the most transient part of the whole process. It is properly ripe for a few days. It has to go to a seller. It has to be processed in order to retain its value. Your crop is valueless if it's not processed and there's a process cost. So if you depend on a major producer, a major wholesaler, even a small to mid-sized um, winery that buys your fruit, and you've been told now that they're not going to be able to buy your fruit, it's a duck or no dinner situation, and the extent of that attrition has yet to be quantified. Presumably, people will step in, but the price they will get for their fruit will really be below cost of production. Yeah, because the harvest season is coming up in February, March. Yeah, late January, given the seasons these days, late January to March. And depending on the variety, depending on your location, you have fruit that desperately has to go to a winery. In the old days, it would have gone to co-ops. There are very few of those left. And what they are now are not cooperatives. They are businesses that can say, sorry, we're not taking it. If it were a co-op, you're a member they have to take your fruit. You may not be paid for it, but they have to take it. And that situation is going to play out fairly dramatically in the first three months of next year. So there's going to be more attrition ahead. Absolutely. And that's the part we can't yet quantify. What a disaster story. It really is. It's it's very very threatening for the industry. Well, Uh, Your next choice, we're going to talk about that a bit more in a moment, but your next choice is Beethoven and the Violin Concerto. My very first LP. In a house in which there were 78s, I was given a little turntable, played 33 and 45 speeds, and my first LP was a David Oistrakh performance of the Beethoven and Violin Concerto in D. And here it comes. That was the slow movement of the Beethoven Violin Concerto, very appropriate for this year because Beethoven turns 250 
this year, or would have turned 250. And I suspect he was a beer drinker, wasn't he, rather than a wine drinker. Didn't everyone drink beer in those days? I suspect I they drank what was served. <laughs> <laughs> I do remember, apropos of nothing except how time flies, that I was on a junior city council organized tour of all places Israel at the end of 1970 and they managed to get us into the uh, double century concert which was Zubin Mehta and Daniel Barenboim playing with the Tel Aviv Symphony Orchestra it's extraordinary to think that was 50 years ago yeah amazing well um, we're talking about wine and the wine business a lot of people over the last 40 years have become interested in wine, partly because of people like you. And and it's still, well, was, still growing. I think it is still growing. I don't, you know, all that, unfortunately, COVID will do is two things. It will, um, people who might have had the discretionary spending power may not have it or may not have it for a bit, or they may have to alter their budget, etc. But certainly there's been a massive swing to wine consumption. We see it at, at RMB Winex. We see it because if you imagine the audience there 20 years ago um, and the age, the profile, the gender, every demographic, every single demographic element has changed. And it is now youthful, vibey, represents the South African demographic pretty much exactly. And that tells you how much things have changed in very little time. The first Winex was in the year 2000. Here we are in 2020 with, unfortunately, and we'll, I'm sure, talk about it, an online version, but an online version that's been embraced by the industry and which we hope will be embraced by consumers. And that change from an elitist, inaccessible kind of show to one that really represents a much more all-embracing view of wine has been a 20-year journey for the industry and for all of us. Well, let's hope that it results in some good sales for the the farmers as well. Um, just let's talk about it a moment because uh, a couple of days ago, and that's what prompted me to phone you, was I received a box of wine from Winex, from RMB, and it had a little saying on the outside. Of the oceans of the world divide us and wines of the world unite us. Exactly. And I think I really do believe that the the spirit of the world of wine is different, if you like, from the spirit of other alcoholic beverages. Um, it is by its very nature <clears throat> a social drink. It is usually but not exclusively with food. And because it comes from that engagement of food, people, wine, good company, good conversation brings us together. The lunch parties of my youth in the homes of my parents, artists, friends were long tables of 15, 20, 30 people and steaming bowls of pasta and bottles of wine liberally stretched down the tables. People ate and drank and behaved well and argued and fought and united and embraced and went home and great ideas were exchanged and minds were refined and aesthetics were made clear again. So wine, well, wine, the history of wine, we can't get too deep into that right now. Let's play your next piece and then we'll get into that. Your next choice is the Canon in D, a famous piece by Pachelbel. The famous Canon in D by Pachelbel, and I bet a few glasses of wine have been drunk whilst listening to that piece because it's been very popular over many, many years, often played at weddings and public occasions. A great piece. Wine has, as we know, has been around for thousands of years, and it really has been a thing that brings people together. I mean, even uh, in the Bible, we read about the, the wine, the water being turned into wine at the wedding in Cana of Galilee. Um, and I think that during lockdown, perhaps people have been together more for mealtimes, certainly in our family, because I have I usually travel a lot, like you, but during lockdown I haven't been able to. So very often we've had uh, evening meals where we would not have had those before, sitting together, drinking a glass of wine. 
absolutely the same true in our family our poor teenage boys who ordinarily would have had many escapes um, simply had to embrace family life and for us as parents um, it has been actually in many ways an extraordinary and valuable family and very experience. special time very yeah, special yeah. no question we about found it, it too um, and just to go back to Winex for a moment because 20 years is quite something for Winex it's been extremely popular from day one and this year just explain to us what happened this year because this box I received perhaps you can describe what's in the box so there are two parts to Winex you obviously as a as a guest and as an associate of RMB received your wine but this is a uh, this is an in, uh, an endeavor from RMB to reach out to the clients who would have int- attended Winex for members of the public what you have is the first half of what we've created, which is that the Winex website has 260 plus video clips of the winemakers talking about themselves, the sellers, and each of the 260 wines. These are three and a half minute clips. So really they are, they don't require an extensive listening. And they've been extraordinary. The winemakers have risen to the occasion. They were told that if they wanted to participate, they needed to talk on camera and tell you about a selection of their wines. And as I say, 260 have done so. So you can click onto the site, find a wine you're interested in tasting or knowing more about. But what we're asking people to do, because obviously we can't send 260 bottles of wine to the supporters of Winex in Johannesburg, is go onto the site, and the site goes live on the 9th of November. But prior to that, you can see which wines are available for a little presentation. What you do is go out and buy a couple of the wines and go and buy the wines you've never sampled before. And then get together with your friends, keep yourself socially distanced, organize a meal, have two or three wines, go onto the site on a computer, a laptop, on your TV if it's a smart enough TV and you're smart enough to do this. Hear what the winemaker has to say about the wine as if you were standing opposite him or her at WineX and then sample the wine, get on with the meal, and you can do this many times. That site will be live until the end of the year. So instead of this compelling need to be at WineX, which would have opened last night, that was the booked night for the first night of WineX, and would have been over by this Friday. Instead of that, what you've got is two months of WineX, of being able to connect with the winemakers engage with their wines, sample the wines by going out to your supplier of choice and having them. And then, which is what we're really asking people to do, support the wineries. Go online, buy directly from them. If you buy from the wineries as a result of WineX, they have committed to a percentage of their turnover going to a selection of different feeding schemes. So Keeping the wine industry alive, which we think is vitally important, also means keeping the families of the winelands alive. And so purchases from the wineries as part of the Winex initiative will lead to a flow of funds into the various wine industry feeding schemes. And to find the website, you just go to Winex. Winex, www.winex.co.za. There you are. You can find all that information there. And here comes uh, a good piece. You can listen to music, too, while you taste your wine, and this would be a good one. This is a piece by Jan Gaberek called Parche Mihi Domine, uh, and it's saxophone and voices. That was Jan Gaberek, the famous saxophonist, performing a piece called Parche Mihi Domine with a choral group. He very often did that. Fantastic sounds and good to drink wine by because that's what we're talking about today. Over the last 40 years or so, a lot of, as we mentioned before, a lot of small wine producers have grown up, well, grown up in more ways than one, but uh, it's not a cheap thing to get into. If if you're going to have a wine farm, you've got to have a small fortune. 
to have a big fortune so it can a finish up as a small one. <laughs> yeah. This is true. Yeah. But what has been extraordinary about the developments of the last two decades here, and it really has been an interesting fork in the road, is that traditionally, exactly as, as you have it, you had to inherit or make a fortune somewhere else and then go out and reduce your fortune by buying viticultural property, building a state-of-the-art cellar and then waiting 15 to 20 years before your cash flow at least normalized. But the younger generation, led by, as they would be, um, adventurous people, Eben Saadi, Chris and Suzanne Alhait, those people, went out and found vineyards that had wonderful potential. The fruit of those vineyards was being delivered to co-ops. The co-op era was dying by the late 1990s, so they persuaded the growers who had these vineyards to let them buy the fruit. So they didn't need to have the capital investment in the actual vineyard. They then cobbled together, in many cases, very small, very rustic cellars, but they brought an authenticity back to the wine simply because they couldn't make them high-tech sellers because they were hugely dependent on the fruit quality. So they did what should have been done many years before, which is they made the viticulture express the fruit of the place. They vinified that fruit separately from all other fruit and therefore could sell you single-site wine and explain to you why they thought it was what it was. So they created cults around particular sites, particular winemakers, particular styles of making wine. And they reintroduced genuine, if you like, slightly geeky interest in the world of wine. It ceased to be seen as an industrial product. It became a product of craft. And many of those you think won't survive. The people who were successful from 15 or 20 years ago are now properly established. There can be in my mind no doubt that they will survive. But the next wave, they're the ones who are under the greatest possible threat because they haven't yet reached the point where their reputation and their flow of stock will sustain them through this hiatus. Your next choice is a very interesting one, the Goldberg Variations. And the reason they're called the Goldberg Variations was of the person who played them. There was a harpsichordist called Goldberg who was hired by someone who couldn't sleep. And he asked or commissioned Bach to write the Goldberg Variations so that this harpsichordist could play them to him while he was going to sleep at night. I understand, at, in fact, that it was one of the few pieces of Bach's music actually published in his lifetime. Well, we hope it, well, we don't want people to go to sleep, but, <laughs> <laughs> but it's why, is it the aria? That it's the aria. The, here's the aria from the Goldberg Variations. That was the aria, the famous aria, the theme, if you like, from the Goldberg Variations by Bach, chosen by Michael Fridjon. You're listening to People of Note on Classic 1027. And this is a program broadcast every Sunday from 6 to 8. And we hear from someone who's an expert in a particular field or who has a, a wonderful story to tell. And tonight certainly is a wonderful story. One of the things that you said you were was the, a, a visiting professor of wine business. Now, this would imply that there are a lot of people somewhere at university, at UCT in this case, who are also interested in wine business. So who are you lecturing to or teaching? So it's a postgraduate course, uh, which has been running now for probably nearly 15 years, and it's evolved considerably over the time. Initially, we set it up so that it was in combination with the University of Adelaide, and students would do an elective there and do an elective at UCT, and it's now fully sustained and fully managed at UCT, and it brings people who want to come into the wine business at a professional management level. Um, lots of winemakers, particularly senior winemakers, do either the management courses as part of the faculty or um, go to the degree level, and it's because finally as winemakers are promoted up the pyramid of their employment, they land up becoming more and more administrators rather than people who get their hands dirty 
calling hoses around wineries. And they need then to acquire the business management skills to make the most of it. A lot of marketing people do the course because they need to be able to connect taste with market with message. And there are courses which obviously embrace everything from marketing statistics to how to taste wine. I lecture a, an annual course. I run a wine judging academy in conjunction with the university, and that's an industry-directed course that produces wine judges. But as much as anything else, those who are on the business courses need to be able to understand enough about the taste of wine to engage with it as a product and not as a commodity. And where have we arrived at uh, in terms of the world wine business, first of all, in terms of quality, uh, second, in terms of the people going into it. Have we got good people in South Africa, and are we producing good wines? Very simple answer to that is yes. The improvement in wine quality here over the past three, four decades has been extraordinary. The technical know-how of our winemakers, and much as you like the idea of craft, the best craftsmen actually obviously know the science behind their craft. In the post-isolation era, young winemakers travel and do vintages in the Northern Hemisphere so that it is two vintages a year, not one. They have a much broader experience, a much more refined technical competence. And so the current generation of winemakers are generally people of the very highest standard and you see it in our wines. South African wines are widely regarded as, to quote any number of international critics, the most exciting wines of the new world. They are also unfortunately regarded as the best value new world wines, which means that not only is the weakness of our currency counting against us, but people automatically assume that if it's going to be South African wine, it's going to be dramatically less expensive overseas. And the unfortunate truth is that we've been able to sustain this up until now because so many of these older vineyards have been available at no purchase price to the winemaker. But long term, we need to recalibrate our pricing internationally if we're to have a sustainable wine industry. Your next choice is called Red Red Wine, UB40. Let's listen to it. That was UB40 and Red Red Wine. I mean, the connection is obvious. Indeed, I did think we needed one of those, and I have to say it used to be played at one of the awards functions that we organized when I ran the SAA wine selection many years ago, and so it's kind of stuck in my mind as the piece of music that goes best with red wine. <laughs> Do you manage or have you managed over your life to attend many concerts, for example? I mean, many of the these fantastic bands have been to South Africa. I wonder whether you have that interest. Do you still go to concerts? I go to concerts at the Linda. I do not go to concerts <laughs> at the F&B Stadium. Um, I have an aversion to crowds and all that go with them. And noise. So, yeah. And the noise. So all of those factors together. But there are um, cabaret-type bits of music which, in a sense, date back to an era when uh, you might have been at one of those smaller, more intimate concerts, and I have obviously a connection with some of that music for the obvious reason. And Simon and Garfunkel, for example? Simon and Garfunkel was of an era. It was, in my, in my youth, another confession, I managed a couple of pop bands, which were very successful, and in fact our musicians um, ultimately were two or three of the key players in Rabbit, so that'll date me completely. Was this while you were at university? When I was at school. Oh, at school. It was highly lucrative, let me tell you, for a schoolboy, and um, era as well, I suppose. And when I kind of went beyond Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin, and the Beatles, the Stones, I suppose the next era for me was Simon and Garfunkel. I chose that particular piece because it also dates to the movie, to The Graduate, to just an age which seems now an era of lost innocence, and the music expresses exactly that. It's Simon and Garfunkel, Mrs. Robinson. Mrs. Robinson, Simon and Garfunkel, the choice of 
Michael Fridjon, who's my guest in People of Note. Now, I notice another of your choices is really quite unusual, but you did make a, a brief reference to this earlier on. Uh, this is Lorica Rauch and Stiergrute on Manikis Ru. An unusual choice for me, um, and a concert of hers that I went to in a very intimate kind of um, theatre would be a grand word for what it was. And all kinds of very personal connections. Uh, my next door neighbour, um, my former next door neighbour, played in the same team as Manikis Rue. Having heard the piece of music, I said to him, what was so extraordinary about the try of Manikis Rue? And before he could answer, his wife said, Achman, don't ask the old has been. So I've never found out exactly. You can actually download a video clip of the try, why it became part of South African cultural history. I have no idea. It is a sentimental piece of music. It talks about the drought. It talks about the difficulties of agriculture. And of course, in that sense, it links us back very perfectly to the world of wine. It certainly does. Stier Grutte on Manikis Roo. There we are. Well, we've, we're certainly getting a wide range of music tonight from UB40 to Lorica Rauch to Beethoven and uh, Granados and Dittersdorf. I don't think I've ever had anyone on People of Note choosing uh, Dittersdorf before. So this has been a wonderful range of music that we've had. Well, uh, if people want to contact you, are you happy for them to contact you, or would you rather they wrote to me so that I can pass them on to you? Um, they're more than welcome to contact me. And how do they do that? Um, email is easiest. My initials, MF, at reciprocal, R-E-C-I-P-R-O-C-A-L, dot C-O dot Z-A. There you are. If you want to contact Michael Fridjon, who's my guest, and he's a great wine expert, mf at reciprocal.co.za. You just have to spell reciprocal correctly. Uh, so that's a bit of a test. mf at reciprocal.co.za. But if nothing else, you can tell him how much you enjoyed his, uh, his uh, music choices. You've also been advisor to the Minister of Agriculture. I, I'm just wondering what advice, if he asked you for your advice now, what would you tell him? I would certainly do my best to encourage a massive liberalization around all the issues affecting wine. And I would have fairly strong views on the subject of the way alcohol is being blamed for poor policing. And it is really, it's a soapbox matter for me. We have massive legislation governing the distribution and the sale of liquor. We have police who do not appear to regard it as a priority in their lives to enforce the legislation. It may even be that they prefer it as a means of rent-seeking. I asked the CEO of a large liquor company if he knew what the fine was, current legislation for supplying liquor to a minor. He had absolutely no idea. It's a fine of up to a million rand or five years in prison. If that law were imposed even on an example basis a few times, we wouldn't have the super spreader events, which apparently are what are threatening a future lockdown. It is not the presence of alcohol. It is the absence of enforcement of legislation. So one of the things I would certainly say to the minister is that it's not about attacking alcohol. It's making sure that Bekitsele and his police would do what they are paid to do. But my involvement at the time, and I fear, would still be much more about managing the industry so that it's on a future growth path. I worked very closely with Derek Honecom for uh, three or four years in the late 1990s, and we effected a massive transformation of the industry and brought it to a commercial no longer protectionist and absolutely competitive basis. And I think its success of the last 20 years is in part due to the role that Derek played as a leader, bringing the industry from a long protected and very elitist um, entity within the country to the beast it is today. And uh, your next choice of music is 
part of the Trout Quintet by Schubert, and perhaps this goes back to the fact that people have been eating and sitting together for meals much more in the last seven or eight months than perhaps previously. So you can enjoy a bit of trout and some good wine to go with it. Maybe, I don't know what you'd recommend for trout. What would you recommend for trout? Uh, a very interesting question because the answer in many ways is white wine and in my case the Chardonnay before a Sauvignon Blanc. But on my way here today, I had a phone call from a restaurateur friend who's planning a function and he said to me very seriously, would you serve red wine with fish? And I said, I absolutely would. In fact, there's a book called Red Wine with Fish written by Sommelier and there are red wines, particularly Pinot Noir, that would go perfectly with trout. There you go. So there's your advice for your trout dinner. And here comes part of the trout by Schubert. That was part of Schubert's famous trout quintet. Very appropriate choice for tonight, and you even got the wine suggestion to go with it from Michael Fridjon, who's been my guest. And we've come to our last section now, and I just want to give you those details again. First of all, Winex, www.winex.co.za if you want to have information about up to 260 wine estates. 260 wines and a direct engagement with the winemaker about those wines and obviously about the seller and his winemaking philosophy. Three and a half minutes each, not a bore. There we go. And if you want to contact Michael himself, mf at reciprocal.co.uk. ZA. And uh, he's not in the business of handing out information about which wine to choose, I shouldn't think, on the internet. But if you've got something broader that you want to share with him, then please do. mf at reciprocal.co.za. Well, it's been an amazing couple of hours to spend with you. Thank you for making the time in this busy time for you. Um, and we look forward now to seeing what's going to happen in January, February, March next year. With apprehension, but with optimism, absolutely. Yeah, and maybe April, May, you should come again and tell us what's going on. I'd be very happy to do that. Thank you. My guest in People of Note has been Michael Fridjon, who is a wine judge, director of Winex, a visiting professor of wine business at the Graduate School of Business, UCT, past advisor to the Minister of Agriculture and a great wine lover. And the, his final choice of music, because he's obviously also a great music lover, is the wonderful saxophonist Branford Marcellus playing Foray's Pavan. That was Branford Marcellus playing Foray's Pavan. He's a fabulous saxophonist, and we've had a fabulous guest on People of Note. Thank you, Michael. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you very much indeed. It was fun preparing for this and a really enjoyable chat. Thank you. And we'll be back next week, same time, 6 p.m. on Sunday evening. Make it a date.